Hello and welcome back to Fearless Questions, where we follow our questions to freedom. You guys, today we are so lucky to have Propaganda is with us on the line today. Prop, how are you doing? Man, I'm, 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 I'm promoting the campaign and I'm good. <laughs> Very good. You guys, for those of you who are not familiar with uh, Prop's work, he's a hip-hop and spoken word artist and a poet. Um, correct me if this is wrong, but I think you've got like a master's degree in like social science and education. Yeah, yeah, I teach a credential master's degree around there. Yeah. Okay, you've released a bunch of records. You've been involved in all kinds of other campaigns and events. Um, the I Am Second thing you did a while back. You may have even been yeah. a youth pastor at some point, if I recall. So I don't, which I wasn't aware of till recently. So, um, but currently you're yeah. on the Expressions tour. And, yep. uh, you know, we'll put links up for tickets and stuff like that in a bit. But uh, thanks so much for joining us today, man. Yeah, dude. It's my honor, man. My pleasure. Well, look, uh, Prop, I know that um, I know that you're from Los Angeles. and um, Born and raised. Yeah. And, uh, you know, before we kind of get too far in your story, be helpful. Maybe you've had a little bit of a unique childhood experience in that you sort of grew up in two cultures, if I remember right. And uh, Yeah, yes. Could you maybe just kind of fill us in on your background there, what that dynamic was like for you growing up? Yeah, so um, Los Angeles, you know, you're familiar with this, this city, like traditionally it's kind of divided by the uh, by the freeways because of just the way that the geography works. It's just so spread out. So like I live, the the highway that kind of separates the east side from the west side is, uh, is the 110 freeway. And uh, I, and the 110, on the east side of the 110 was uh, where the community started to become much more Mexican and Latino. Um, so I basically lived right at the overlap of where sort of the black community and the Latino community kind of overlap. So I grew up on my street was, um, almost a hundred percent, uh, Mexican, uh, except for me and one other family. So, so because of that, like, uh, I, you know, I just kind of had this sort of dual experience where, you know, I came from a home where my father was. He was a former Black Panthers. He was heavily involved in like the civil rights movement. Um, so I had no qualms about being black or, or any sort of like problems with that. Uh, I just happened to be in a Latino neighborhood. So, so with that, you know, you, you learn Spanish pretty quick. Uh, so you can kind of have friends, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, and, um, and uh, yeah, and that's probably was the biggest sort of uh roadblock in getting into sort of the gang culture because you know i just wasn't mexican so because of that like you know you just can't like you, you didn't know, get the liability invite? no i didn't get the invite you know and then like i mean you know my uh sort of extended family that lived down the street um you know a couple blocks over but since i wasn't you know technically i didn't live there you know i couldn't you know, I just I also was an option to this. There's, there's a little bit of rules to uh, yeah. to kind of how how gang culture work. You know, uh, it's much more organized than one would think. But um, but with that, uh, you know, I just I just didn't get the memo. And and the truth is, like, you know, quite as kept. Don't let the news tell you. Like, the vast majority of inner city kids are really just regular kids trying to get to school on time every day. You know. Okay, well, like, we got just, we got breaking news here. Did it, did it, did it, Kids are just kids. All right. <laughs> kids are literally just kids. Okay. Just like, just just regular kids trying to make it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, so, so I was really just one of those, just a regular kid that loved skateboarding and 
thought it was cool to see guys spin on their head. You know what I mean? I just felt like, you know, just the choices, and I get it, you know, I get why other kids did it, but just yeah. the choices that kids made to, you know, get involved in that culture, the gang culture, I was like, well, I mean, I, I guess that's for you, but it's all ain't for me, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so um, that's kind of that sort of dual citizenship, and then, um, you know, just, and then the dominant culture just being, you know, just the American dominant culture just being, you know, very white, like any anybody has to Essentially, we're all bicultural. Every, every person of color is somewhat bicultural. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Gotta, gotta learn how to survive in sort of white spaces. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I've actually heard you yeah. talk about that, that need to, the difference between um, being a part of another culture and needing to adapt to another culture. Like, there is a different mm-hmm. a different dynamic there. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, tell me, you, you moved on then. Um, I know you said you went from sort of the prime you were on sort of the Mexican side of the tracks at first mm-hmm. then you went yeah. then you guys moved and you were you still the minority when you moved across the tracks Yeah 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 so we moved uh got a got a good little tax return uh <laughs> one year and um went out to like the burgeoning suburbs and uh yeah you know it was funny cuz I actually followed um I wonder if somebody's in a few years from now is going to do like some sort of you know urban uh sociological research on this but like a lot of californians kind of made the same trek out to uh, this area called the inland empire um around the same time our family did and it was really just to kind of again houses were just like super cheap you know and um so we moved out there and uh you know it's kind of the same thing yeah it was uh obviously it's you know a suburban space um at by the time when we got there you know it wasn't really many uh base you know communities of color out there uh, were so it was still another like sort of fish out of water kind of experience um, and as time went on like more you know it became much more diverse but at the time it was a very very homogenous space um, and uh, yeah so it was like you know kind of learning to learning to adapt and you know and sort of speak other cultures and uh, and make friends you know yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> well well two things one of the things um I do want to touch first before we get in. You're kind enough. I, when we talked, I, I let you know that, uh, you know, race is one of these big issues. I really do want to spend some time talking about today. Um, uh, but before we get to that, I wonder if you just, I mean, you are a, you are a hip hop, uh, spoken word poet artist. Mm-hmm. I wonder, just yeah. tell me briefly kind of, uh, what took you into that, what that's been like for you. Um, yeah. Yeah. So like hip hop again, like I fell in love like very young, um, you know, and it was kind of sort of in in this uh, sort of the vacuum that was created by not being enveloped in gang life. You know, um, I just became so much more fascinated with, uh, you know, other things and what else was happening. You know, you go down to Venice Beach and you're like, man, these guys are spinning on their heads. That's the <laughs> coolest thing I've ever seen, you know. Yeah. So you're like, I want to be a part of that. So pretty young I um, kind of fell in love with hip hop uh, and then poetry was something that happened in college and in um, in, in complete transparency I was really I was chasing a girl and uh, you know she was an upperclassman and she you know told me that uh, you know she was like man you're a good rapper you'd probably be good at poetry and I was like oh okay right so like a you know a nerdy little freshman that you know I would be you know what I'm saying and sure. uh, 
yeah, I just so I just followed her into this event and then kind of and then she became background noise as I just kind of fell in love with the art of spoken word and then because um, it felt like these guys were just you know these guys and gals were just such better writer writers than I was okay and I just I wanted to be able to write that prolifically you know and um, and when you don't have music when you don't have you know, a chorus or a get your hands up. You don't have all those things going on with it. You just gotta like it's just you and the words. Mm. So uh, I I was like you know completely fascinated. And just, I wanted to become good at that. You know, and that's kind of how I fell up. Well, look, I don't know how much you you know how much you know about fearless questions, but one of the things that we've one of the things that fearless questions is about is this idea that you know the, the scripture talks about perfect love casts out fear. But that mm-hmm. we kind of think that the opposite of that is also often true in that perfect fear drives out love. And that's very difficult to, to love anything you're afraid of, whether it be an idea, whether it be mm-hmm. people, even God. And so yeah. um, one of the things that's so fascinating about this idea of, of uh, race is that it doesn't get talked about. I mean, it does get talked about in some ways, but not maybe in some of the helpful ways. I mean... Along my journey, I actually, you may not be aware, I spent some time over at Oxford University studying Christian apologetics, you know, about how to defend the Christian faith and dig into all these tough mm-hmm. questions. But you might not be so surprised that the number of times we engaged the idea of faith in, in regards to race was, to my memory, exactly zero. And yeah. Yet, and yet when you come back and you talk to people on everyday life, like what are the issues that are coming up? Race is constantly coming up. And so, uh, and people don't know what to do with it. So I really appreciate you coming on to sort of engage this um, with me. Yeah. Um, because I, I literally have never heard someone um, more helpful. The first time I heard you talk about it, you were on the Liturgist podcast with yeah, yeah. with Michael and Mike. And it was, you know, people probably better tuned into theirs because they did a great job with it. But, but no, I mean, I've never heard somebody be so challenging, but a truth teller, but do it with grace in a way that was really helpful. Um, yeah. So just as we kind of jump into this, one of the things that I thought was most helpful out of the gate was this idea of um, clarifying language, like defining words yeah. that people are actually using. And so uh-huh. if you'd be willing to maybe just start there, like talking about the difference between like things like racism and bigotry and discrimination uh, yeah, and prejudice, yeah, yeah. if you just sort of yeah. try and break that down for us a little bit. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'd love to. So uh, before we get into that, just, just a little uh, caveat on the idea that like um, race isn't talked about uh it's more, I, I, I push back on that and say, well, race is just not talked about in white spaces. Fair the rest enough. of us have been talking about it all the time. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, that's y'all's experience. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, like, uh, just because y'all ain't talking about it don't mean we ain't talking about it, right? So, anyway, uh, but, uh, yeah, so for, for, for purpose of defining terms, um, prejudice is one thing and prejudice is something that i think we all carry you know where you sort of prefer one thing over another like you know you uh like sushi you know over spaghetti you know what i'm saying um has a lot to do with sort of preference and comfortability um and um yeah you know you where it's like a feeling of sort of disdain towards one thing over and against another thing so, and when it falls along the line of people, because we're talking about a, a prejudice towards you know, certain humans, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing. Um, that's a prejudice. Now, discrimination is when those prejudices are acted upon and you begin to create 
sort of laws and practices that uh, box out one person uh, or one people group over and against another people group, right? So that's a discriminate. That's discrimination. Now, when those discriminatory uh, actions and laws become a systemic thing that of the way for which the entirety of the culture and society functions, right? As far as those that are in power have now enacted discriminatory laws based on their prejudice, now we're talking about racism. Hmm. So racism is something that cannot be separated from power, right? Because hmm. it's a systemic thing, right? So when a person is racist, we're talking about a person who is um, involved in the power and the ability to enact a particular prejudice. That's why, at least in America, you, if by definition, you'd be hard pressed to call uh, a person like the concept of like reverse racism. Like mm -hmm. it's not real because you have to be in power, right? And if you're not in power, then we're we're talking about something completely different, right? Um, so. So, but a, a person a person that's not in power can be incredibly, incredibly prejudiced, and they can function in very discriminatory ways. But if you're not in power, you can't enact a system, right? So, so, so it's important to understand that when we're talking about like racism, we're talking about a very structural, systemic thing that has power and and history of it. Hmm. And that is something that you know that. Um uh, first of all, I think your your critique about white people not talking about is very fair. Um, yeah. I do think, though, I mean, to that to that end, there is whether or not they've been talking about it for a long time. I do think that there are a lot of white people that that want to be talking about it now, Absolutely. But, that, but that are afraid yeah. to talk about it. And I don't. There's a lot of uh, societal like people are afraid of being judged and all this. Um, totally. And so I do hope that's one of the things we're trying to do here is create some space for people to to mm -hmm. engage in the conversation. Um, yeah. What? Absolutely believe. Let me let me even add to that. I absolutely believe that, like, you know, if if I've been in a conversation that's been going on for almost the entirety of my life, like, you know, I, you know, thirty some odd years, of course, I'm going to be incredibly more well versed and comfortable and articulate about it. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, like, it, you know, if you just now started talking since, you know, what I'm saying since Drayvon Martin got shot, right? Mm -hmm. And like. This is still a new conversation for you, so I think that like um, there is an element of sort of grace and patience that um, you know we can stand to give to uh, to sort of white communities that are that are attempting to start these conversations. Now, that's having said that, it's not necessarily managing a fragility, if you will. You know what I mean? Um, which I don't think is helpful. But at the same time, I think there's a there's an element of grace. I think we can tell me more. Show. Tell me more about that. That idea of managing fragility. What do you mean by that? Okay, so so uh, it's sort of a, a, um, a sociological concept called called white fragility, which basically is when someone starts pushing back at racism um, and specifically when it comes to incidents of, of sort of privilege and sort of inherited privileges, mm -hmm. how the idea is so uncomfortable and ghastly that 
uh, it's just the, the initial response is like, I don't want to talk about this. Like, you're making me so uncomfortable. so hard. Like, why are you guys so, why are you guys always having so hard on this? It's, everything's this. Why is everything this? Because it's like, so now your feelings are getting hurt. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because we're talking about realities, right? So, like, so, so now the, it's like, I now have to choose my words and like, and I can't talk about these things because it makes you uncomfortable. That's, that's because you're, you're behaving very fragile. Right. In the way that like if, if uh, 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 to take it away from from race and more talk about like like if you were to look at it in a in a sort of relationship, like a marriage sort of way. Like so if you have like, you know, a husband who like has just been complete, just terribly nasty to his wife for, you know, the last, you know, 15, 20 weeks, maybe even a year. Mm-hmm. And then she finally starts saying, you know, you were being very this. And he's just like, oh my gosh, like, okay, I get it. Like, why you, why do you guys have to always talk about this? Like, man, it just, it really hurts my feelings when you tell me how hard. And it's like, what do you, what, what do you mean? Your feelings. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. you, you know what I mean? So that's, so that's what I mean by like the managing of like, of the fragility oftentimes means that we can't actually get to the actual discussion that we, we can't get to the nitty gritty. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because your feelings might get hurt, right? Mm-hmm. And and so what I'm saying is like that that sort of stance is just incredibly unhelpful. Okay. But um, now having said that, that doesn't mean that you know uh, truth needs to be harsh, condemning, and vindictive. But it does need to be true. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. No, we're all for the truth here. That's uh, that's yeah, what yeah. we're that's what we're searching for. So, well, yeah. to this end, about like um, how we do that, and this is um, this might sort of be blending, uh, you know, blending kind of socioeconomics with race in this question. So I'm not. Yeah. I, I realize it's not exclusively about African Americans, but one of the totally. sort of accusations that seems to get thrown around, especially at poor African American communities from sort of a, almost like a moral high ground from wealthier, often white people, is this idea that part of the perceived inequalities of race in America has to do with people relying on the government to get ahead. Like it's a government mm-hmm. handout. It's a, If people yeah, just yeah. work harder and all that kind of thing, then mm-hmm. it's like this lazy argument or something, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and I know, I've heard you speak on this to some extent. I, I really find it helpful, especially with some of the um, historical things that are behind it. But I wonder if you'd spend a little yeah. time just sort of addressing this issue. Yeah, yeah. So I think the the misnomer of sort of that kind of American rugged individualism, just this sort of the sort of American dream that if like if this is the land of opportunity, you just work hard, then you'll get what you get. And I think the truth is, if someone really, if even even if a wealthy person like follows that logic down to their to its conclusion, they know that they're speaking out the side of their neck because. They, I mean, they know it's, it's, then you, you hear, you hear wealthy people talk about, yo, it's networking. It's who, you know, Mm -hmm. you got to get in the room. You know what I'm saying? And once you get in the room, you got to show them your stuff. So like, okay, so then what you just said is you have access, right? Right. Right. And so that means it wasn't you working hard. It was your access. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was a combination of both those things. Right. So it's a combination of doing your best with what you have and having the access and the opportunity to flaunt your stuff in front of the people that can make these things happen for you, right? right? So having the access to those people is privilege. That's just, it's simple. Like, so you, 
Like you actually understand this much more. I'm saying you proverbial, proverbially, mm-hmm. but like you understand it much more than you you're willing to admit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if it was as simple as like working hard, I mean, again, use your logic. Look outside the window at the uh, the person cutting your lawn. You telling me that person's not working hard? You telling me that person is not going to leave your lawn, go down the street and mow another lawn, and works you know ten hours of manual labor? You telling me that person's not working hard? Right. So like so clearly we understand that it's not that cut and dry. Right. And we understand, again, talking to sort of the lower socioeconomic white people. Right. That are that worked in our steel factories forever. You know, the 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 Tallahassee, Florida, you know, the 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 farm workers that, you know, white poor farm workers. Right. You tell me they're not working hard. Right. So we all know that 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 motif clearly is not that simple, right? Hmm. Um, so 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 destroy that one. But I think that comes again with this idea that we just we bought this sort of American dream thing that we all know is just it's it's romanticized. Like it's not it's not real, right? <laughs> uh, so um, so th- so there's that. Now putting that to the side. Um, one of the things we discussed, like you said, on the Literacy Podcast, and I've talked about it before, was the uh, the um, sort of historical precedence of how systemic issues of and, and race that per, that you know preferred one people group over another set us on a trajectory that got us to where we are today, right? So one of those things is you know after the Louisiana Purchase, which is its own narrative of how which is own issues of sort of power and prejudice right uh, but after we got that and at the end of the civil war after we just like decimated our our resources our population like we just i mean we just we wrecked ourselves um but we needed some food and we needed people to move into this land and sort of like you know kind of needed some farms you know and uh, we needed people to work these farms. So the way that our government enticed uh, families to move out there was um, something called the Homestead Act, which was where uh, families were basically for pennies on the dollar given this land, uh, a couple acres of land, as long as they just promised to pay the interest, right, on the on the land title, right, mm-hmm. and um, and if they pay the interest on the land title and make these things um, farms. Right, uh, that could sort of feed and help. And the way that they could make these farms is the government would subsidize all of the necessary tools, right? Whether it was the farming equipment, the seeds, the training to become farmers, because it's city folk, they don't know how to do this, right? Mm-hmm. So the government actually paid for all of these things, right? So you, you got the land from the government, you got the resources for the government, you got the training from the government, Right. So you were able to start this sort of family business and then you can take that family business and, you know, hand it off to your children. And now your children have a head start so they can either take over that family business. or They can take that money and move into the city. And then so that family did that. And then, and then the kids and then their grandkids and then their grandkids after that. Right. All the way down to when uh, African-Americans were finally allowed to vote. You have to remember during this time, nobody else could own land except for middle-aged white men. Mm-hmm. So the entire program clearly was for them because no one else could own land, 
right? Mm. So, so if that's the case, then, you know, 100 years down the road, you have these families who, or, you know, these people that are looking at, like you said, looking at people that, like, y'all not working hard. You're always looking for the government handout. And I'm like, yo, it just, it just happened to you 100 years ago. You, can, you got your wealth off a of handout, right? Mm. So, so when you start just having a better understanding of history, then you say, like, uh, what's, what, what is the difference? The only difference is your granddaddy got the handout, not you, right? Mm. But your granddaddy was able to, to accrue wealth because of that. My granddaddy wasn't allowed into that program. Hmm. Right. I wasn't allowed into the program until now. Right. But now you got the nerve to tell me I don't have a right to this program. Right. Hmm. So that's that's. No, that's helpful because you you, what when you describe that, you know, like your very last line there, you said now you've got the nerve to tell me this. You're describing uh, an offense that people I, I think a lot of people are not even aware that they've that they've uh, been a part of um, historically yeah. not themselves today yeah. necessarily so that's why sometimes the disconnect because I know I've even heard you talk about like the GI bill and and mm-hmm. things of that nature too but um yeah you know um yeah it's 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 interesting and I, I was going to touch on this later but just along this lines because um, I know especially in some of the um the economic circles that I operate in sometimes are very uh, successful people and they do work hard, but, but they understand, they understand things about, they operate in a place where somebody starts talking about historical issues and they're so dialed into this idea of, look, I'm working hard now. I don't have time to deal with mm-hmm. what happened, you know, 200 years ago. That's none of, that's not my problem. Um, mm-hmm. How do you, how do you address that with a person that maybe, you know, is there a way to engage that um, respectfully or is it, just going to be hard unless somebody wants to spend some time listening. Yeah. I really think like I'm sort of the like, and this is just me personally, but like, I'm sort of the, like, I'm not going to convince you that the sky is blue. Yeah. Right. I'm sort of not that guy. Like if you, if you've just already decided, you know, that this is fact and there's no amount of like evidence I can lay in front of you that's going to change your mind. Mm-hmm. Then I'm like, man, enjoy your latte. Just all right, whatever. <laughs> right? You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I don't have time for that. Right? Uh, but you have what I find is the most. What I have seen has been the most effective is actual like living and breathing relationships with people that are different. Than you. Mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and it's just it's I've seen especially with like with you know, sort of communities of wealth and which which actually fall along a lot of racial lines mm-hmm. or not just, I mean, fall along a lot of like different ethnicities because I, 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 a lot of times we have the same problem of affluency within sort of uh, communities of color, you know what I mean, um, where they just have a shorter view of history, you know what I'm saying, and, and it becomes sort of this like, I got mine, how come you can't get yours type situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of it really just has to do with relationship. Like once you start making actual friends with people and experiencing what somebody else is experiencing, then, you know, then I don't need to cart any facts in front of you, you know, because now that now the situation has been humanized, you know, um, I think film is a, is a good way of that. Uh, one of the things I actually talk about in some of my music, uh, is like, you know, the, the, okay, so how do I say this? Like, so, so the breaking, so breaking bad, 
right? Mm-hmm. So you look at Breaking Bad, you know, and it's, you know, middle-class dude, you know, just pushed into a situation due to systemic issues that caused him to make, um, you know, a very questionable decision, right? So in that scenario, you have a person that looked just like, just like y'all, you know what I'm saying, just trying to make ends meet, you know, and he makes a decision based on the cards he was dealt. Now, was that decision right or wrong? You tell me, right? But if you found yourself any at any time in this in that series trying to figure out who you was cheering for, were you cheering for Walter or you cheering for Skyler, right? So either way, now you've seen really the complexities, right, that get us to situations that we are. Because if you was cheering, you was cheering for Walter, you're like, you remember you're cheering for a drug dealer now. Mm-hmm. Like he's no different than he's no different than that boy on the corner. Just trying to trying to trying to feed his kids. He's no different, right? So now if you were cheer now if you was cheering for if you were cheering for the cop, you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, that cop was corrupt. That cop was cheating on his wife. That was a corrupt cop, right? So you're like, wait a minute now, you know what I'm saying? Now if you cheering for Skyler, it's like, wait a minute, she's cheating on her husband. Now, see, I'm trying. I'm tracking with you here, but the problem is, I've been thrown under like the pot, like my social, my lack of social stats because I have not watched one episode of Breaking Bad, and everybody in the country talks about it. I know, right? But I'm tracking with you. Okay. (laughs) Well, the beauty of the show (laughs) is the complexities, and it displays the complexities. And what I like is that they're like, yeah, they're that's a. That's a middle America Caucasian family. Yeah. And it's making you really think a little deeper about some of the complexities that a lot of us face. You know what I'm saying? Like it's really not that simple, right? And so so when you offer simple answers to complex problems, you're only gonna run into bigger problems. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You can't like the answers are not that simple. It's not like, oh, well, you know, the inner city don't have fathers. I'm like, yo, go to Wall Street. You trying to tell me that you trying to tell me the little boys see their dads? Yeah, no, they're not. They don't see their dads. <laughs> no, they're right? on, they're they on the train an hour away. They're on the train an hour. Away, they don't see their dads either. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. so like it's not that simple. Is it? Is it money? Right. Well, then if it was just money, why these why these wealthy kids cut themselves? Why they throwing? Why are you upset? Why they throwing away their futures? Why you know? So it's so there's like it's complex. It's yeah. much more complex than we're willing to admit. Well, see, their issues, they like, we like to keep them tucked away privately. You know what I'm saying? Like, we, yeah. we put shiny bows on them and, and uh, yeah. name brand sweaters. So, yeah, there it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, along this lines, though, um, like I was, I was going to this open forum here. I'm in Indianapolis, and um, Dr. Robin Hughes, she's, a, she's on the staff at, a, at one of the state universities here. And, and uh, someone in the audience, she was talking on issues of race, and someone in the audience was talking about, "Hey, what do I do?" And this was not necessarily a Christian environment. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it was a it was a church hosting it, but it was not necessarily, a, you know, uh, yeah, it was just open forum type thing. And this person in the audience was saying, well, "What do I do when?" Uh, it was, um, I think, it was somebody of uh, maybe a Latino descent was asking the question. They said, "What do I do when I hear somebody say something on campus that I feel like is, you know, racially inappropriate or offensive or something or else?" Or I just think is insensitive, and uh, this professor's she says what I do is I think everybody needs to check everybody. So her suggestion was to people to call them out every time you hear it, and mm-hmm. um, and I don't know I, I I have to be honest I was like but I'm sitting here as a white guy who's you know I'm I'm protected by this in many ways, but I'm wondering if you if you 
she didn't have time to like go through the justification for why she felt like that was the best best way forward, maybe to bring truth to the surface. But have you seen yeah. ways that that can be helpful for people? Or absolutely, because I think a lot of times people don't know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's that, and I think that there's this like you know sort of historical precedence of like allowing of like it has to be this ginormous movement to be able to like speak truth to power right we you gotta have a uh you gotta have an mlk like you gotta have this like giant of a human to lead this entire movement to be able to speak truth to power right Mm. well i think that's happened because yeah like you didn't stand up to your uncle jack like at the dinner table when he's when he's just like flippantly using the n-word all the time right Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying oh it's just uncle jack like no it's not just uncle jack right like Mm -hmm. you know you can say something to uncle jack like hey man like it's not i just don't appreciate that you know what i'm saying like it's it's available you're available to say that right so i think that in those like direct conversations with people like you know if there's a coarse joke like i find I, i find myself having to do that with issues of gender like sometimes I'll be in conversations and somebody will say something about like, you know, uh, oh, my wife, this, this and this or, you know, well, you know, you know how women are. And I'm like, nah, nah, I don't mm. actually. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with like. You just bring the awkward up in the room real quick. Huh? Why not? Right. Because I'm <laughs> yeah. like, dude, my wife, my wife has a Ph.D. in educational policy. My wife's a doctor. You know, mm. so when you start throwing around, it's like, oh, you know how women are. I'm like, no, actually, my wife's a working professional. Like, mm-hmm. no, it's not. It's not our house. It's not how it works. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, not. Nah. I don't, I'm not, you know what I'm saying? So I think that there's like, if we can, I think we do such a great way, like, whether intentionally or unintentionally, how boys really police each other in our masculinity mm-hmm. right and we've been doing it since elementary school like oh you don't like basketball oh that's gay you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying just all these things where we've like oh man you just, you just quit playing like a girl yeah like like we police each other on what makes a dude a dude right mm-hmm. um so then if you somebody like myself who's like well i actually know i didn't watch the basketball game you know why because i was really interested in this like poetry event that i'd much rather you know what i'm saying so like wait you're interested in poetry yes i am interested in poetry you feel me so like yeah um you you i i found myself like you know all through high school lying about my march madness brackets because i'm like <laughs> i ain't watched one game but i'm gonna act like i know you know what i'm saying because yeah. i can't let the boys know that i don't know you feel me so like <laughs> yeah. so we so we police ourselves all the time right what if we would police ourselves over over justice and equality. Mm. What if, in the same way that we don't let boys go out of the very narrow, sort of like alpha male definition we have of manhood, right? What mm. if we uh, did that with, with like justice? Like, what if, you know, the second somebody says something, I'm like, ah, oh, what are you, bro, like, what are you talking about? Mm. You know what I'm saying? I think before, yeah. No, this this is helpful. I, I, I like that. Um, I, I like under, just kind of seeing the picture of how we can shape a culture in that way. Um, mm-hmm. Now, in the context of like a fearless questions, I know one of the things that I would hear if there was like, if there was like a suburban white person listening as part of the conversation, I, I can hear it already. Okay, wait, we're going to call people out for, for saying offensive things, this or that. And then we've got 
this like rap industry that like throws around the N word like like mm-hmm. it's nothing, you know. And yeah. so, and then you get into that, and I, that may be a bigger conversation than what we have space for, but it it does seem to at least be on the same playing field somewhere in this conversation. I wonder what you might say to that. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I really like that conversation. Um, I think uh, we've been in, in a number of situations that are like that, right? But I think uh, one thing to look at is, uh, again, the power dynamic. Mm-hmm. in that moment, right? So the power dynamic is saying that anything someone else has, I should have access to, mm-hmm. right? So among hip-hop and among communities of color, we have music and dialect and ways for which we communicate to each other that express a particular experience, mm-hmm. right? That we all have an understanding of. Right. Because of our shared experience, because of our shared suffering, our shared success or our shared experience as a nation and as a people. So we talk this way to each other about situations. Now, whether it's good or bad is a whole other conversation, but it's still understood. Right. Mm -hmm. So what what in this suburban white person feels like they have the right to access and to the same sort of communications based on an experience that they did not share, right? Mm-hmm. That is a privilege issue, right? It's, it, becomes, it comes from being a part of the dominant culture. Why do you think you have access to that anyway? Every, everything ain't for you, right? So mm-hmm. there's that, you know? I think another great example is like, uh, like Jeff, are you married? I am, yeah. Uh, okay, <laughs> what do you call your wife? Um... I call her by her name quite often, but sweetheart. Quite often, right? Yeah. Sweetheart, right? So, so what if I were to walk into the room and be like, hey, sweetheart, you would be like, uh, 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 <laughs> Yo. uh, 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 time out, time out. You don't have the right to call her that. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? No, that's and a good you're example. absolutely correct. I don't have the right to talk to her that way mm-hmm. because I don't have the same relationship with her, right? Yeah. So, but you do because you have that relationship. You have, I, I dare, I wish somebody would come to my house and look at my wife and say, hey babe, like time out bro, time, time out, time out. Let the latte you fly. Talk to her that way. <laughs> yes, you don't talk to her that way. It's relationship, so. Well, let me let me complicate I, it a little bit because that, okay. that makes clear sense, that makes pretty clear sense for me from the white suburban person. Yeah. But as we see socioeconomics bring, um, more of a interracial mix into cities mm-hmm. and you see you know maybe white children growing up in a in a rap culture let's say where these words are thrown around that's when it gets really weird like it, it gets really weird yeah so that's what i'm so that's what i mean by a shared experience okay so when if someone is willing to enter into see that's that's what's interesting about music and entertainment mm-hmm. because you have this this dynamic this dynamic and it's a very uh it's a very important line, and it's really tricky to move from or this to discern between appreciation and appropriation. Okay. Right? Um, so appreciation is the person you're talking about, the person who has not just doesn't just have this music on their Spotify, but understands the experience for which this music was made out of. Right. Okay. Who has lived among and experienced and you know what I mean so you understand the culture in the same way that like you know if I were to go listen to some like Irish folk music I would appreciate it mm-hmm. right 
and I'd appreciate it for what it is, but I know nothing of their history and context. So if I were to start, if I were to change my whole sound and I become like an Irish folk singer, right, that would be appropriation because I don't understand it in any way, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, and I could see how Irish culture would be like, man, okay, do you understand why we use a mandalay? Like, why? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Or mandolin? Like, do you understand this? Like, do you understand the history of this? Like, where this came? And I'm like, nah. You feel me, right? And, yeah. and, and why are you faking that accent? Like, why are you, why are you trying to fake, you know, Irish? Like, you're from California. Like, why are you doing it? You feel me? That's, that would be appropriation, right? Okay. So, but if I were to say, you know, yo, I really appreciate this, man. I'm going to go live in Ireland for a couple of years. And I really want to understand, right, and be immersed. Or it was just something I couldn't help. I just happened to be born in Ireland. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? I just, what if my parents were in the military and I was born in Ireland? This is the music I grew up in. And then there would be a context that would change the whole perspective. So I think, mm-hmm. like you said, with this, like, with these these people that are also just as, in the same way that I'm bicultural, there mm-hmm. are plenty of people that are also bicultural, right? Yeah. Um, because they've experienced and they understand context. So when you understand context um, and history, I think that the conversation totally changes. Yeah, definitely. Now, again... Now, again, like I said, now what that conversation actually is, what we're actually putting into our ears and our and, uh, you know, the things that we may actually be calling each other mm-hmm. is can be incredibly problematic. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. you're, you're absolutely correct. Well, but that's a conversation that's like that's a whole other conversation. OK, fair enough. And, I, and I'm not trying to give I, I didn't I know I kind of threw hip hop in with some of that. No, it's all good. But uh, but. Um, you know, I, I heard Lecrae give a TED talk recently on the, yeah. on um, you know, you know what heroes and villains and the nature of hip hop and how it could mm-hmm. be used for That's a real. I thought that was a really great talk he gave that that might yeah, be helpful for people um, in that way. Um, just there's so much stuff to move through here, but when we're talking about um, you know the the shared experience, like you're talking about the background behind behind why things are the way they are. I've heard mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about. This is a, you know, I am a Jesus following guy. I'm searching for yeah. truth wherever it's at, but uh, I'm never going to escape my, my kind of Christian accent. Um, of course. But uh, I've heard you talk about sort of the, the history and kind of the differences and experience between like the African-American church and sort of a more, you know, Dutch, uh, European informed white church in America. Uh-huh. And I wonder if you might be able to explain some of those. I know it's a big question topic, but yeah. maybe spend a quick second. Um, paint some pictures for people that maybe have never considered why some of those kind of uh, traditional ideas of what those churches are like really are that way. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Um, yeah, I think that a good place to start is, you know, where the black church, if you will, actually came from. And its origins were because, well, you know, we weren't allowed in white churches. You know what I'm so, like, once, um, once, uh, you know, once the slaves were free, you know, you had, you know, Bible-believing Christian ex-slaves who, you know, sort of look, it's, which is a funny dynamic, like, they looked at the same scriptures that their slave master was looking at, and what the slave master saw was a justification of slavery. What, what these people said, they said, oh, no, I see a, I see a liberating king. I see the children of Israel being set free from their slavery. Like I see, I see us being reconciled in Christ. So now there is no Jew or Greek slaver free. You know what I'm saying? So like, so they looked at that and was like, "Oh, this is great." Now that we're, now that the law has caught up with the scriptures, we can now fellowship in our churches, 
right? Yeah. But that uh, <laughs> that prejudice died hard, and it just went. So you have like this brother named Absalom Jones, and um, in uh, in Philly, which is where like the African Methodist, you know, Episcopal Church came from, the AME Church came from, and it was because they weren't allowed to abuse, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, so so the black church's origin was because of systemic racism you know what mm-hmm. i mean so like so and and has historically has been sort of this like gadfly to the american church as a whole you know um because they were the ones that led the civil rights movement they were the mm-hmm. ones you know what i'm saying where it's like mm-hmm. this just these like gaps in in you know in judgment these lapses in judgment that like the the church as a whole was just hmm. missing. You know what I mean? Like we've, we've historically been that. Now, with that, again, because of that sort of the 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 sort of slave experience, where we just as a culture really resonated with Moses, hmm. right? And with the concept of Moses, because we understood oppression, right? Hmm. So we understood when the parallels between Passover and the cross, the parallels between crushing Egypt, crushing Babylon, crushing sin. We understood that these are oppressors. So the line that you can draw from Moses to Jesus just made perfect sense to the black experience, right? Hmm. Um, Whereas if you were always a part of the oppressors, right, then that was a, a difficult sort of, line to connect right um because you're looking at man you got this god that's like destroying all these people and you know conquering lands you know so then so then ultimately that sort of eurocentric narrative i found was really drawn to paul and sort of pauline things which is very academic which is very sort of coming from you know sort of that that eurocentric kind of linear uh, knowledge-based understanding of who God is and what he's done for us, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so now now the beauty of that is the scripture affirms both, right? right. Uh, but, and I, and I actually think that that's, again, sort of the beauty of our faith is that, you know, God knows our, our cultural ears, our cultural preferences, our aesthetics, how we work, how we understand and understand and, and our epistemology that comes from our culture, like he understands that and displays it beautifully in scripture, right? So I think that's a, that's actually a testament of God's goodness. Um, you know, uh, that both of those things are there, you know, but if you still have, you know, it's still difficult if you're like, you have, you know, churches pulling from sort of the, like you said, the Dutch reformer who we need, right? Um, but they had holes. Like you take like an Abraham Kuyper, who was like, you know, the same guy that's like, there's no part of the world that, there's no part of the universe that God doesn't declare mine. That's a beautiful picture of sovereignty. But he's also the same guy said the African mind is hopelessly and permanently childish and will always need the white man oh. to make sure that he doesn't destroy himself. Oh. That's Abraham Kuyper. Oh. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. y'all don't know that though. You feel me? Like, and his, um, his hand in sort of the the thoughts and thinking of apartheid and what apartheid in South Africa and apartheid what it really was was in a lot what you really the, the, what's really the, the the punch in the gut is 
apartheid is actually just the natural next step from Jim Crow. Mm. Like that's what Jim Crow would have became mm. had it not like it's just the natural evolution of it. You know what I'm saying? It's the same logic. It's the same separate but equal. We can't mix, and you actually need your European descended people because this is high culture, mm. right? And these are and these are phrases you get in seminary like high mm. culture. High culture is Rembrandt, Renaissance, right? And then low culture is indigenous, tribal, right? And like, mm. you know, so it's so just this motif that's already set up uh, what 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 the seventies old folks used to say, which is white is right. So it just <laughs> it just kind of set up this motif, you know. Mm. So it's like when you hear it from your pulpit, it becomes incredibly disheartening because you're looking at the scriptures and going, wait a minute, I just don't I don't think that that's I don't think that's what it says, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, so I think that there's that. But again, the beauty of when you are truly reconciled and you understand that, like, yeah, like your personhood and your value comes from the cross, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and my sonship is purchased in Him, you know, and everything that I am is on purpose. The Lord made me black on purpose, and I'm important. Because it's helping you understand the Imago Day so much better, right? So when you have that perspective, you can stand on your square and speak freely and speak in full love to to power or to people that are different than you, and not feel any sort of like anger. You know what I'm saying? Or of vindictiveness? Because I've already processed through that. I've already been angry. You feel me, yeah. right? And and because now it's like, yo, it is what it is. You feel me, like. I've, I've been tired, you know what I'm saying? And I, and I know what tired is, you know what I'm saying? And I'm tired of telling people the obvious. Mm. But like I said, for me, I'm not the type that'll convince you that the sky is blue. Mm. Because that'll wear me out. That really gets me like vindictive <laughs> and cynical. You know what I'm saying? Where I'm like, no. man, you can't see this yourself. Like, yeah, I'm and you're bringing, attention, you're bringing attention to how much we, we do selectively forget. I mean, I don't know if it's still on the internet, but there was a... Um, there was a website that you could just like dial up. It was like you hit the button. It t just brings up a new stupid thing that Martin Luther said, you know, it was like that most yeah. Christians would be completely embarrassed of and, and all these <laughs> other folks. And we, we conveniently forget that. And, um, yeah. and then there's so many other folks that have been around that we don't even know. We haven't heard their voices. I mean, um, yeah. I heard you reference a guy who I didn't know anything about named Tom Skinner. I don't know, yeah. Just if you share his story real quick, I know it's, Yes. Yeah. So Tom Skinner was around in the 60s and 70s. He was in the in the black community. He was essentially the um, the only guy that would stand up to the uh, only Christian that would stand up to the uh, to the nation of Islam folks um, and affirm sort of the black narrative and the black narrative inside of scripture. So and he was a part of a. Uh, uh, the impact movement, one of the one of the precursors of like the impact movement um, that uh, to draw a line to now was where Lecrae actually became a Christian at one of the impact events. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So like, yeah. So there's a very uh, it's a very direct line from Tom Skinner to what we experience now. You know, but he's just a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man that was um, pivotal and really uh, sort of shaping Christian. Uh, um, uh, Christian politics um, and like and race relations, uh, okay. but yeah, like I, I mean, a lot of times, like I want to reveal, like I like the surprise when people actually look him up and they're like, "Oh 
crap. <laughs> like, so I don't want to like ruin that. You know? <laughs> well, yeah. that's part of what we want to do here today, though, is I, I really yeah. like it when people get the chance to be exposed to new resources and new, yeah. new voices that, you know, fill in some of the gaps for, I think people intuitively know there's more to the conversation than what they're getting. Um, but people yeah. don't know where to look. So, um, you know, I want to ask you one other question. There's a couple last questions as we get towards the end. But um, I was talking to a public school teacher friend of mine, and I was, and we've mm-hmm. kind of touched on some of this. But I was like, what is it that you're wondering? And they were wondering about, you know, as humor gets brought into this racial conversation uh, in social settings, you know, um, they were like, what is what is helpful and what is too far? And, you know, how do we best how do we incorporate you know, healthy conversation. Is there a place for, for humor with this race stuff? I mean, Dave Chappelle always walks, walks the edge of it, you know, from back when the, the racial drafts to even his newer yeah. stuff. But, you know, do you think there's a helpful place for it or should teachers and youth workers just, is it just become unhelpful? Oh, no, 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 no. You have to have humor. I actually feel like, I actually feel like humor and actually comedy is like our last it's cultural's last stand for truth saving. Okay. Is is our our comedians, you know, and the role that humor makes plays in this. I'd even say like, you know, right now, like if you'd say the role that you know, okay, so when um so when uh when President Obama for the last eight years, right, was around people like Rush Limbaugh, right? This like shock jock who you know, in a lot of ways for like our, our, our staunchly conservatives, like he was very funny, right? But he was but he was lobbying these challenges toward uh, left leaning politics that like you know if you if he didn't have that element of humor, he wouldn't have the freedom to do that, right? Okay. Or to even say, Hey, wait a minute, we actually need to think about these things. So now you have like you know the the John Stewarts or the or the John Oliver Stephen Colbert's like these guys now uh, Samantha um, B right that's like you know these comedians right who are throwing these lobs these hilarious lobs at our presidency now right which is so these whereas like your mainstream you know media kind of has to take him serious and they can't really. It's just they just don't use humor that way. But there's much more profoundness coming from, say, your Rush Limbaugh's and your John Oliver's, right? Uh, that is making us think about um, politics in a in a much more, which I think we need to be. We need to be a much more skeptical society about the decisions that our leaders make. I think that there's a healthy level of skepticism that needs to be there, right? Mm. Now, having said that. Uh, so in, in these conversations, humor really is, again, like the best, I feel like it's one of the best displays of really who we are and, and where the human nature is because it's, it's disarming, but it's also very convicting because with humor, the science of it is the audience has to find themselves in it. And when you find yourself in that moment, that's what makes it funny, right? So, uh, so now that you're in there, now we can talk about like you know, real things. I give an example about like, um, where I sort of talk about like how cultures kind of need each other and, and that ultimately I'm trying to unpack like intersectionality and that like, and affirming each other's like dignity as a, as a people. And I kind of talk about how, you know, um, 
man, if it wasn't for if it wasn't for white people, I would have never known that like you could put fruit in a salad. Like who knew you could who knew you could put a strawberry in a salad? That just it just changed everything, right? And right. then I'm like, and then with you guys, and then with y'all, I'm like, hey, you know, you know, you could cook kale, right? Like I don't understand why you guys why y'all eating it raw? Like cook it. What's wrong with you, right? So so, but you know, so we're, I'm, I mean, I'm talking about like fruit and vegetables, but right. the point I'm trying to make is like, yo, like our collective experience can make us all better. You feel me? So you're talking about something very serious, but I think humor is absolutely necessary. So you're saying it can almost be the key to open the conversation sometimes. I absolutely believe that. Okay. Well, that's helpful for youth workers and teachers out there. I think that like, you know, trying to figure out what the, what the way forward is into healthy conversations. So you're, you're, you're yeah. saying that's a, now that's, there's, yeah. Now having said that, there's a bad way to do humor, right? <laughs> right. right. Um, if you're not you funny, know, don't do it. <laughs> number one, right? Or if you're not, or if you're not sort of like, I think of some things that that's often overlooked is really just how remarkably intelligent comedians are, right? These are very, very smart people. So you have to actually understand to its fullness what you're talking about. Before you start cracking jokes, you know what I mean? Because if you start cracking jokes, then you just don't fall into the same sort of racist like yeah. practices that you're trying to talk about. You feel me? So, then like, you're just pulling open pen, grenades, pens right in the middle of everybody and, yeah, without yeah, any purpose. Like this, yeah. yeah, like this, uh, you know, one example, like right now, I don't know when this podcast is going to air, but this thing with like Kendall Jenner and the, the Pepsi uh, commercial where uh, like just... Pepsi just kind of wreck themselves. Oh, no. Essentially, it's this like I don't know. If, I don't know. Again, probably your listeners may know, but like they aired this commercial where she was at this uh, photo shoot, and then she sees outside there's this big like protest and rally, and then she walks out and she takes her blonde wig off and she throws it to this black girl, which was the fun, which was already the funniest part. Like she's gonna throw it to this black lady, right? Okay. And then, and then she walks over to this, you know, crossing these lines between. You know, the protesters that are yelling and the officers in their riot gear. She walks up, hands them a Pepsi, and then everybody parties. Right? Okay. So we're like, oh, really? That's just that's how you solve all of our racial problems? Hand them a Pepsi. Right? So then you have all these, these like, social activists who were, like, and these images of, like, people being beat senseless and blood all over their face. And, you know what I'm saying? And going, hand them a oh, Pepsi. All I had to do was hand them a Pepsi. Yeah. Right? So, like, so the humor is what pointed out how that's an example of like, okay, so nobody in the entire company of Pepsi Cola could see that caught how this was going to be problem. Like none of y'all caught this, right? So you're trying to do something profound, but you really don't understand. So now we're right back to that conversation where it's like now you've been being rude to your wife or whatever for a year and like Yeah, come on. It's man. just like you yes. didn't even acknowledge it happened kind of thing. Yeah, you know, then they then they issued an apology like, oh, oops, uh, yeah, yeah, we missed this one. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you sure did, guys. You know? uh, and and then and I think people cracking jokes about it, like in response, really, a proved the point that mm-hmm. they were trying to make, and two, it just, you know, if you're if you're not laughing, you know, you're shooting up a place. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> okay. So like, this this is what kept the. Uh kept Pepsi from being shot up, you know? 
well, Prop, look, I want to respect your time. And there's some questions even in that conversation about diversity and what what our actual goals are and some of this and what ideal societies yeah. look like that is too big for this conversation. But I'm, I'll be chasing you down in the future to talk about that stuff. But, Absolutely. Um, but for now, at least, um, you know, we talk about questions here all the time, the questions mm-hmm. I never wonder about. I wonder what are the questions that you wish people were asking more these days? Man, um, uh, yeah, I think, man, I think a couple of them. I wish people were asking more about justice rather than um, unity. Uh, I wish that 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 sort of step was not skipped, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish people would be asking uh, a little for, uh, let's see, uh, Maybe rather than like, sort of, what can I do? But rather like, how do I say this? I think I get questions, a lot of questions about leveraging privilege. But I think what I think a better question would be is like, how do I lose it? How do I give it away? You know, what can I do to give to you rather than um, use what I got for your gain? Better, like, how do I just give it to you? You know, I think I think those are like. Those are real challenges, you know, and those are things that I think, man, like that's that's a real question. You feel me? Mm. Um, and I think, and I think, uh, I think one of the other questions I think would be one where it's more like I kind of wish people were asking sort of questions of themselves much more, you know, rather than questions of me, like questions like help me, like you want prop to help you think through stuff, but rather being like, man, sit down and ask yourself these questions. Why? Why, you know, why, 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 why do, why do I feel the freedom to walk up to a police officer and start a random conversation? Like, why, why, how come I can do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or, how come the police make me nervous? Or, you know, why haven't I actually spoke to my neighbors yet? You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Like, like, ask those questions of yourself first. You know what I mean? And maybe get, get to sort of some solutions that you may actually, you actually already know the answer. Hmm. You know, I love that. I love that, especially the one of the reasons I I really wanted to talk with you not only because of of uh, how articulate you are on so much of this stuff, but um, but your heart comes through. And when you said that second thing about you know how can I, how can we give away privilege and things? It to me it that beats very closely to the heart of Jesus that I've come to understand. Yeah. So I, I appreciate yeah. I appreciate that. Thanks, man. Um, well, look, Prop. I want to respect your time. Thanks so much for like for uh, for sharing with us and for um, and for just sharing your time and your heart and your mind yeah, with dude. us. It's uh, it's a blessing for all of us. So I appreciate it, man. I appreciate you having. Me. All right. Well, we'll talk soon. Okay. All right, guys. All right. See you.